do a little review because we're separated by three, maybe four weeks. Uh, I reviewed just so we remember. We're talking about the kingdom of God, which is God's people in God's place under God's rule, uh, which means God's blessing or God's cursing. That's the definition that is used in the book, God's Big Picture. We first of all took a look at the pattern of the kingdom as it's seen in the creation. God spoke everything into existence. He created a perfect world. He created man and woman, set them in the midst of the garden. This is God's place, uh, God's people in God's place under his rule, and still with blessing or cursing. Eat of anything you want. You can have any tree. You can have the strawberries. You can have the bananas. You can have the apples. You just can't eat from this one tree. And if you do, on that day you will surely die. And then we moved into the perverted kingdom, as I like to call it. He calls it the, the perish kingdom. That is that when Adam ate, because Adam is blamed for the fall. When Adam ate, sin entered the world, and it corrupted everything. It tainted everything that there is. Uh, if, if you were out last night and you saw the beauty of the stars, or you woke up this morning and you saw the wonder of the sunset, when I was driving here, a long time ago when I was driving here, and you saw the gorgeous sky that's out there, that's nothing compared to what it really was. In, a, in, in the way that God created it. Um, C.S. Lewis calls us this time the Shadowlands. The real world is yet to come, and when it comes, it's going to be gorgeous because it's going to be back to the garden. Well, they fell, and all of a sudden, boom, the blues weren't as blue, the reds weren't as red, the pinks were still pinks. <laughs> but there was this, this gorgeousness. And that affected every part of creation, even human beings. Uh, then comes the promised kingdom where after sin has, has been doing its dastardly deed for a while, God calls Abraham from his father's house to go to a land that he would give to them. And there he gives them the promise that those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. You are to be, a, in, a, in a sense, a light unto the nations. You're going to show these pagan people how I want people to live. And he did such a wonderful job, right? He goes down to the Egyptian and he passes off his wife as a sister. Technically correct. He didn't lie. But he did deceive. Okay, Just a wonderful example, right? Well, that's us all over. And then you go through the, the, the family line. Abraham to Isaac, the, the uh, son of the promise, to Jacob. Jacob, whose name means deceiver, who deceived Esau twice. His father and his mother set him up to do it. Uh, who finally had a name change into Israel because he went from the deceiver into the one who strives with God. And the nation from that point on was God's nation, but it strove with God all these years. So you have this 
lineage that's taking place. You have from Jacob, you have 12 sons. Only mentions one or two daughters. But I, there were other daughters there. Out of the 12 sons, the 12 tribes, taken out of the, uh, slavery in Egypt, into the wilderness where they're given the, uh, the provision of God, his presence, and as well as a law of God, as this is how you live because you have been saved by, by my grace. You, got, you, know, you remember that's the order. That's very important. Because that's why we say Israel was never saved by its works. It was saved by God's grace. But this is then how you are to live. And then it moves from there into the beginning of the nation where Jacob, or excuse me, Joshua conquers the land, but they don't conquer it enough. They leave tribes that are always kind of a burr underneath the saddle. Um, and out of that comes Samuel. Then you have a first king, Saul, who started out good and then was corrupted. Then into David, who becomes the epitome of all kings. He extends the country from the Euphrates all the way down to Egypt, from Mediterranean Sea past the uh, Jordan into the desert. It's the pinnacle of its history. You have Solomon who comes later, who is born out of a relationship that caused David to sin. And yet Solomon becomes one who builds the temple, one of the great wonders of the world. This beautiful place, and God enters into it when they're finished. He had been with the tabernacle. His presence was there. But when they finish the temple, Solomon offers his long prayer and then God comes in a cloud and almost like fire. So nobody can go in until he allows him in. In fact, the high priest is only allowed to, is the only one who's allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. And it is petitioned off by this huge, heavy, thick curtain so that nobody can look in at the presence of God. Then you... And that's probably the high point of the history of Israel. From there, you have the breakup with, from Solomon. You have the breakup of Jeroboam and Rehoboam. This is why I read. This is why I write so you can't read it. So if I misspell, you don't know. <laughs> Jeroboam becomes Israel, the northern kingdom. Rehoboam comes Judah, the southern kingdom. Which then it becomes difficult to to read the Bible because you hear. hear the Bible talk about Israel, and you think of all of Israel, but they really mean the northern kingdom. So you have to kind of fix your mind for that. This happens about 922 B.C. Of course, they didn't know it was B.C. <laughs> okay, They have their own way. Somewhere around here, about 720 
B.C. Assyria conquers Israel and takes them out. And they do a pretty good job of getting, taking the people out of the land, putting new people in. You'll find that this happens and it has ramifications in years to go down because part of Israel will then become Samaria uh, during the New Testament times. And the Jews of the new Israel hate the Samaritans because they're half-priests. They're not pure. They're not Boston pure, blue bloods. They're a mixture. And they brought in pagan gods. Judah goes up until about 586. And then you have Babylon, which had conquered Assyria, that comes in and conquers Judah. And begins to put them underneath their uh, wing for about 20 years, if I'm remembering. There's one exile here, and then there's a second exile where they really clear the land because the, uh, the leaders of Judah just do not want to bend the knee to the Babylonian kings. And then finally, you have Persia, that takes, invades Babylon, that conquers them, and you have Cyrus, who soon after he becomes king, issues a decree that all the people who are in exile, and that's one of the big names, exile, are called to go back to the promised land. Always underneath Persia's rule but they're called to go back. Can you guess what happens? Very few go back. They had become so assimilated into the Assyrian, Babylon, Persian kingdom that they say, we'd rather stay here than track back to our promised land. Uh, you see the, the wickedness, the the uh, twistedness of their hearts. They hadn't really learned the lesson. And that's where we left last time with the partial kingdom. There they are sitting in exile. Now, into this whole period, basically from here on, God raises up prophets who speak to the people. And you see, why do we study the prophets? Well, they detail why the exile occurred as the Lord God remains true to his covenant through Deuteronomy. As you read through the prophets, you will see them either uh, refer directly to the covenant or indirectly to the covenant. And you'll say, you did not obey what God told you to do in his law. You also remember, I have really pushed you to think about Deuteronomy 28. The blessings and the curses. If you read, especially the curses of Deuteronomy 28, you see the history of Israel. If you do this, or if you don't do this, this is going to happen. And you just, you can trace the history of Israel. It's led some to say, 
Well, it obviously was written after the exile so that they could write it this way. No. This is Moses being a prophet of God and showing God showing them exactly what would happen. And because they followed it, that's exactly what happened. He's true to his word. Be sure your sin will find you out. You cannot escape the word of God and what he has put in there, his blessings and his curses. No matter how hard we think we can or we try. Secondly, they show the Lord's love and patience with his people, even though they are rebellious. You have about 200 years here. You have almost 400 years here where he just doesn't, as he could have done with Adam and Eve, poof, and the Bible would have been done at Genesis 3.15. Just kill them all off. He consistently comes to them and says, repent, turn around, stop doing it. This is what's, hap- this is what's going to happen. And that's the patience that God has for his people, just as he has patience with us. He reminds us of where we need to repent, turn around, and why we have to do it again and again and again. He's got far more patience than I ever have. You did what for the fifth time? Get in your room. (laughs) Okay. And if you fall, tough. Uh, Third, they build a case for the anointed one yet to come. Uh, The prophets in their writing describe his mission, his person, his work. They really are Christ-centered, Messiah-centered. The word Christ is a Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, which is the word for anointed, the anointed one. So you will see references in some of the most unlikely places to one who is going to come, who is their Messiah. In fact, uh, take the Christmas story. Um, The three kings come to Jerusalem. Not three kings. The kings come to Jerusalem. There could have been more than three. Uh, And they ask, where is the king born? And, of course, Herod is going, who? Did my wife have a child I don't know about? And they they bring out the scribes and they say, what's it say in the scripture? He says, well, in Bethlehem, Bethsaida, this is the child, the Messiah will be born there. And so they know where to go. What I always found interesting is even those who knew the Old Testament well and knew this was the prophecy of the Messiah, they stayed home. Maybe the football game was on that afternoon, I don't know. But they stayed home. Eight-mile trek. They're used to walking eight miles. They could do it. But those kind of little hints are resplendent within especially the prophets. And finally, they provide precious promises to God's people in a variety of settings. One of mine is Isaiah 26. I could do a sword. You, do you all know what sword drills are? Yes. Okay. I could do it, but you all have phones. And you guys can do it a whole lot faster because your phone works faster than my fingers. 
26. Where Isaiah is in the midst of uh, saying in 25, uh, God says he will swallow up death forever, which is then referred to by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. And he says, in that day, the day in which uh, he swallows up death or by which he shows himself, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. And we just have the words, we don't have the melody. It's too bad. We have a strong city. He sets up and he sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation may, that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the God, the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Kind of sounds like today, this morning's sermon, right? You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is set on you. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. If you should mark iniquities, who could stand? But with you there is plenteous salvation. Keep, you know, he kept his mind upon Christ. What a great promise. But that's why you study the prophets. They really help you to understand who God is, the anointed, why he does things the way he does, and they're filled with great promises. One of the other ones is from Habakkuk that uh, Paul picks up where he says, the righteous shall live by faith. And it's, it's in a different context in the prophet, but Paul picks it up and says, this is salvation. The righteous shall live by faith. It's from faith to faith. So, see, and if you didn't know Habakkuk, you may have missed the cross-reference. You may say, Paul, did you just come up with that by yourself? Have you coined that phrase? And he said, no, 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 it's my Old Testament. Okay, definition of a prophet. Deuteronomy 18, 10 to 18. Again, here we are in the great covenant that Moses is making the four sermons that he gives to the people before they enter the promised land. And he has been going through what is worship. In 16, he talks about the festivals to which they are to go. 15, he talks about the sabbatical year. 17, he's talking about the decisions of priests and judges and the law concerning the kings. He's covering basic worship and governance of the land. Uh, and then in the, on the ninth verse of 18, he talks about the abominable practices that they are to stay away from. And in verse 15, he picks up on this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet. This is Moses speaking. Like me, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And again, you remember, God was willing to speak to all the people. But they saw the fire, they heard the earthquakes, they saw their God and said, no, Moses, we can't handle this. Which is an apt response to the presence of a holy God. 
usually when God shows up like that, people hit the floor. He says, we don't want to listen to God. You be the one who brings what God says to us. One is coming who's a prophet like me. Listen to him. And the Lord said to me, you are right in what they have, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. That is, if they will not listen, God will and send his curses. But the prophets who presume to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Okay, there's going to come people from the, the, the country who are going to speak on behalf of God. They are his mouthpiece, as Moses was the mouthpiece to Israel in the Exodus. They also, like Moses, will be people who are men of prayer and intercession. As you read through the Pentateuch and Moses' interaction with God, you see him constantly praying out to God again and again. Lord, what are you doing with your people? He says, my people, they're your people. Lord, no, Lord, they're your people. I'm not taking ownership of them. Rough paraphrase. But the idea, he's constantly praying and interceding for his people. Lord even gives him an option saying, look, I will wipe out those three million people and I will start a new nation from you and your family. And the implication is, doesn't that sound good? And Moses says, no, Lord, because the other nations will hear it and they'll say, you were not able to bring your people out of slavery into the promised land. It is your glory that is at, at stake in something like this. So, you have Moses, they speak to God on, on God's behalf. They speak to the people on God's behalf. They're his, his mouthpiece. And so you will see throughout the prophets these words, thus says the Lord. I mean, that is pretty presumptuous unless you know that what you have been given comes directly from the Lord. If, as that passage I read said, if you are wrong, if it doesn't come to pass, they have the right to kill you. It's written in the law. So you better be sure, thus says the Lord. Or if you like the King James, thus saith the Lord. Get your tongue all they are uniquely called and supernaturally gifted by God to be reformers, to deal with covenant infractions. That's their major part. They are recalling the people back to the covenant. They are reformers in their own day and age. 
of saying, this is what you're doing wrong, this is what you ought to be doing, now get to it. Uh, they speak with divine approval and authority. Uh, they speak in strange ways. Isaiah, the 20th chapter. This is why most of you will not want to be a prophet. If there were such thing as Old Testament prophets today. Isaiah 20. In the year that the commander-in-chief who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it. That's the northern kingdom. At that time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. And, if, uh, and the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives. And so on and so on. Naked and barefoot for three years. You know, we're, we would be embarrassed to do it three seconds. But to have to walk around, see, you <laughs> well, there, there is a, a silver lining to every dark cloud, I'm sure. Mrs. Isaiah was very happy, no laundry. <laughs> However, can you imagine walking around Dayton naked for three years because you are a visible sign? First of all, you'd do it for about 15 minutes and the police cars would, would come. Well, maybe not. Maybe people would be so excited about someone doing that, they wouldn't call the police. Um, but this is the way they worked. Ezekiel spent time showing the captivity of Jerusalem. And so he built a little model of Jerusalem. And he had to lay on one side of of around this model for about a year 387 days I think it was he just laid there and he had to cook his food over cow dung now I like natural gas and electricity more than that but that's and he had to eat it that way and then he had to roll over on the other side and for about 40 days lay there like that. You imagine Mr. Hezekiah walking by. It's day 230 and you're still there, Ezekiel. What's going on? You see, that's, that's what it took to be a prophet. Or Jeremiah, who was really abused and one time was thrown into a well of muddy water up to his armpits and he had to stay in there and if it wasn't for the gracious act of one of the servants he probably would have died there because they weren't throwing food in there's no water to drink and, but that's what it takes to be a prophet so with that kind of resume do you want to sign up to do that no I like the comfort of a house and a bed <laughs> okay but that's what, that's what they did. They, they, um, they were supernaturally gifted to endure those kind of things, but to give the word of God out.
and then to suffer for it. Uh, and this is part of the divine approval. And they were forerunners of the one to come who is a prophet, even Jesus. There's a time when Jesus pulls aside his disciples and he asks, who do the people say I am? He's taking a little poll. And they say, some you're John the Baptist, some you're Elijah, you're Jeremiah. And then he asks a big question, but who do you say I am? And they say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter does. And the rest of them are going, yep, yep, yep. I add that in, but it's probably what happened. Peter wasn't the only one who did it. He just, he gets the, the talking part. So that's Deuteronomy 18, and that's, that's how they operated. Uh, they had two things, three things. I added a third one that's not in your notes. They were people who were forthtelling. That is, they were people who recalled, they were persons who recalled to the people the covenant. They didn't come up, they didn't have a whole lot of original material. They just reminded people, remember what Deuteronomy says? Remember what happened with Egypt? Remember what our word says? And then they brought them back. At least they tried to bring them back. They would speak for God to people and to nations. They would speak to uh, the enemies around them. I think it's Amos who spends three chapters. Two of them are, these are the words against Cush. These are the words against this nation and that nation that surrounded Israel. And finally, the third cha chapter, he goes, this are the words against Judah. This is the words against Isaiah. So they spoke not only to themselves, but to nations. Why? Because Israel was called to be a light to the Gentiles. That's what the call of Abraham was. Be a blessing to other nations. And they weren't. So the prophet had to call them. Speaks to God on behalf of the nations. And uh, there. If you're still in Isaiah, go back to chapter 8. Which is just coincidentally in between chapter 7 and chapter 9. Chapter 7, you'll remember, is a great sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, the Christmas uh, prophecy. Chapter 9 talks about people who walk in darkness have seen a great light, and uh, that his, a child is born to us, a son is given, government shall be upon his shoulders. Um, and in chapter 8, and verse 11, for the Lord spoke thus to me with, the strong, with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people call conspiracy and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Do you hear some of the images of the New Testament? First Peter 2, uh, when he talks about the stone of offense, a rock of stumbling. Be, uh, 
bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimonies. They will not speak according to his word. It is because they have no dawn. There's no enlightenment that they have. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and return their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. I mean, there you have him speaking. You're going to speak. You're going to give the testimonies and tell them to the testimonies, to the testimonies. Go back to the law. Go back to the way God described you are to be as a people. And don't deviate. Further on in Isaiah, and I forget the exact address, he says, turn neither to the left or to the right, the straight way. Jeremiah talks about seek out the ancient paths, find the ancient roads, and stay on them. Because they were going any direction they wanted. And if you remember the history of Israel, that's their story. Whatever seemed good and right at the time, that's where they went. Especially the kings of the northern kingdom and periodically the kings of the southern kingdom. Whatever looked good, that's what they went after. Okay. Um, they criticized the ethical and moral delinquencies of the people, denounced enemies of the people. Uh, there's a passage in Amos I think it's Amos 3, where he looks, he's speaking to the people and says, you cows of Bashan. And he was talking about the women, especially the leading women, the wives of the, you cows of Bashan, you're a bunch of old cows. Well, he never read, read Dale Carnegie, that's for sure. <laughs> How to win friends and influence people. But that kind of language struck home. That's, what, that's how they operated. Uh, they speak in prophetic idiom. They use language associated with a covenant. Uh, so that people who knew the covenant and heard them would say, I've heard that before. And in fact, it's the same thing Jesus did. One of my contentions is that Jesus never spoke anything brand new. All he did was take the Old Testament and apply it and speak about it in new ways to the people of God. Prophetic idiom. And so he would talk about there was a vineyard that was planted by the landlord. And he, went, he, he farmed it out to these tenants and he went away. And he came back and he wanted what was good from it. And the tenants 
He sent some servants, and the tenants misused the servants. Finally, he sent his son, saying, They will respect my son. And they kill him. And he says, what will, that, what will that landlord do? And the Pharisees came up with the answers. I'm going to kill him. And he says, yep, that's you. See, and they understood. One of the big symbols of Israel was a vineyard that the Lord had developed. And that they were supposed to tend it for him, not for themselves. You, you read through the, the New Testament and all you're finding is the Old Testament reframed for it. See, that's again, that's the reason why you study the Old Testament. And a lot of it is the prophets. That's why you study the prophets. Okay. Second is foretelling. They were called seers. And that's not a store at the mall. Uh... Well, it gives me time to get a drink of water. They predicted events unfolding to a limited degree what will, occur, what will occur. It is limited because what they say is still a mystery. It's not fully revealed, which will become apparent as it occurs. Uh, Paul writes about this to, in Colossians 1.24. He says, I revealed unto you the mystery. And that's not Agatha Christie. It is, it, is, it is out there, it is in plain sight, you just don't see it. It's only part of it. But what I've done, Paul says, is I've taken, I've opened it up to you so you see the beauty of it. And the mystery is this, Christ within you, the hope of glory. That was a, that was a message of the Old Testament. The anointed one within you, the hope of glory. And that's what they did. Uh, they predicted the coming of the Messiah. I already talked about like Micah and some others. Daniel 9 traces a time period for him to appear. 1 Peter 10, or 1 Peter 1, 10 is uh, Peter's inspired and errant declaration about the prophets. He's been talking about the salvation, the blessed hope that we have, the living hope. And he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the sub subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which you angels long to look. You know, I'm sitting here, Jeremiah. Jeremiah's writing about a new covenant. And he understands what he writes to some degree. But then he's shaking his head. When's this going to take place? Lord, can you tell me what time it will be? Silence. He looks carefully at his scriptures and what he's written, and he can't figure it out because he wasn't serving himself. He was serving you. So you can see when he declares a new covenant and the new covenant comes about, this is from God. 
This is not Jesus coming up with his own new religion. So you have that, uh, the work of the Old Testament covenant. The third section is foretelling, foretelling, forewarning. And that is that God gracious, is gracious enough to tell the people over and over and over again, watch it, it's coming. It's kind of like Jesus in Matthew 25. He says, be alert, watch. You know, the, the destruction of Jerusalem is on its way. Don't fall asleep like the foolish virgins. Be ready, be prepared. And he does this for up to almost 400 years. He keeps talking. You know why pastors and preachers repeat themselves? Because you guys are dumb. <laughs> no, it's because it takes that long to remember it. Again and again. Peter would write, I repeat these things, not be, you know, and I do it because I want you to remember it when I leave. And this is what God was saying through all these different prophets. So their ministry is basically around three eras. The northern kingdom uh, with Elijah and Elisha. They did not write anything, but they are written about. And you have some great stories uh, that are uh, with them. You have the invasion of Syria into the northern kingdom. The fall of Israel. You have the invasion of Babylon into the southern kingdom. And the fall of Judah. And then you have the people in exile in Babylon and Persian. And it ends with Malachi. Some 400 years until the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptizer. Remember, I don't call him John the Baptist because I'm not letting Baptists have him. <laughs> okay? He is a baptizer. But for 400 years, he's quiet. That's, what, that's why John created such a stir. All of a sudden, they have a prophet like what they had read about in the Old Testament, in their Bible. And all of a sudden, he's on the scene. He's there. And it created a whole new excitement about what was taking place. So on the second page, next page, I gave you a chart of when they were. My question, this is not a rhetorical question. What does this chart say to you when you look at it? Nothing. It's printed on paper. It doesn't say a thing. <laughs> look at the distribution. Excuse me? Uh, yeah, the, the northern kingdom? Oh, yeah. Why do you think that's true? The southern kingdom, one of the parts of the distribution is the southern kingdom has, what, about 13 prophets? Something like that. Why? They stayed more faithful. They, that's, that's part of it. They were of the lineage of David. Solomon's son was still their king, and it went through his sons and grandsons and, and down to the last one. 
periodically they would have revivals and awakenings and they would move back to the covenant some of the some of them in great pomp and circumstance um, others just slightly but God had a special place in his heart for the southern kingdom what else do you notice about it Yeah. They didn't get a whole lot of writing, huh? They did get Amos who said the cows of passion. <laughs> Which should have wakened them up, but that's okay. What else? There's no major prophets. Do a little math. Yep. Um, Isaiah happened early on, but a lot more of them happened as Judah de-evolved into their wickedness. And then there's much more prophets. What I found interesting when I looked at it, you look at prophets to the nations. They get three, and Nineveh gets two. And the northern kingdom... Two lousy prophets. <laughs> oh. Okay. You, you, you know, it kind of shows you, was God, God was concerned about that because there was a remnant up there. Elijah and Elisha worked in the northern kingdom. And there were a, a remnant of prophets and of people. But by far, it's almost as if when the break happens and they begin worshiping other gods and when they stop going to the temple because Jeroboam did not want them to go back to Jerusalem. They may want to get back together. God simply kind of lets them go. Doesn't say a lot to them. Shows them they're wrong, but is not as attentive to them as he is to the others. So, I mean, just looking at that says something about how God works. You know, for, for some of us who know the church of our day and denominations that have jettisoned the word of God and have jettisoned the gospel and have jettisoned into social justice what ought to be the, the key and the core of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you just kind of watch God take his hand off and let him go. And they die. And they know they know they're dying, but they think, well, if we just do things better, somehow things will turn around. Well, that's the silliest thing that's going on because they're not getting any better. What they need is an awakening. They're not listening to the Word of God. I put in some prominent themes. There's a marriage imagery between God and His people. Uh, Ezekiel 16. You can read Amos or Hosea 1 to 3, and you'll look at it next week, or next term, next time we get together. Um, and you ought to really be glad, because I've decided no homework for this time period. Either that or you get to catch up, <laughs> okay? <laughs> 
Because if you did your homework for today, you've already covered what we're going to cover next week. So, man, I should have done my homework. That's why I should have done it. Sixteenth, Lord's faithless bride. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. And say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem. Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out on an open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. The double emphasis. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived a full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. And when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you, and I entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. And it keeps going on and on that this is God's picture of Israel. However, verse 23, well, verse 15, but you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby, your beauty became his. You took, some of, he, you took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines. And then verse 23, and after all your wickedness, woe, woe is you, declares the Lord God. Again, a double woe, which means this is a greater woe. That's the, the Hebrews repeated a word if they want to emphasize it. Um, you built yourself a vaulted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in every square. You played with the Egyptians, with the Assyrians, the land of Chaldea. And verse 30, how sick is your heart, declares the Lord God. You are my bride. You committed adultery. You went into prostitution. How sick is your heart? I mean, that's the image that God has. And so Paul says, Christ is a bridegroom, the church is his bride. He's here to bring it to, uh, to uh, make it holy and blameless. And yet at the same time when we read that, we realize the church has been whoring around. See? Same kind of an image. Uh, this is not a lesson you teach to 10-year-olds in Sunday school. Maybe we ought to. But just to tell them, this is how God looks at his people. I created you. I wed you to myself. And you went out and spread your, uh, your beauty to people who didn't even care about you. Just wanted to use you. And you see the anger? You see why he could be wrathful? Like that. 
uh, uses covenant lawsuits. He uses oracles about the surrounding nations. I mean, Jeremiah has about seven chapters on this. Uh, the moral teachings of the covenant is recalled, and this is the cows of Bashan. Tension between true and false prophets. Uh, Jeremiah was filled with a lot of false prophets. Oh, Babylon's not going to take us. As long as we have the temple, the temple, the temple, the temple, we're safe. And they were trusting on the wrong thing. And that's what their prophets were saying. Peace, peace, peace. Temple, temple, temple. And finally, you have the new covenant and the messianic kingdom. Ezekiel 36, which is a beautiful passage about rebirth. That I will sprinkle you with water. I'll cleanse you. Uh, in fact, since we're at 16, it's not too tough to get to 36 unless you have to do a lot of swishing, swishing with your little pen on your phone. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land, verse 24. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. From all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanliness and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and no, lay no famine before you. I'll make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourself for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. We can stop there. What, doesn't that sound like the rebirth? Again, all the action is God. I will cleanse you. I will take away the heart of flesh. I'll give you a heart of uh, take away the, the stony heart, give you a heart of flesh. I will cleanse you. I'll give you a new heart. I'll give you a new spirit. And I'll put my Holy Spirit within you. I think this is also kind of the mystery that Ezekiel writes this and he wonders, how's this going to take place? But the New Testament opens it up to us. And we see it how clearly it is that uh, God does. So when Jesus talks about uh, you must be born again to Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel. And he says, you have to be born of water and the Spirit. And people say, well, with water, obviously, is baptism. No. He's reminding Nicodemus of Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water. I will cleanse you, and I'll put a new spirit within you. Nicodemus seemed to get it because he seemed to become a disciple of Jesus. Though for fear of the Jews, he didn't reach out very much. But this new covenant is there. Uh, Isaiah 61 talks about 
that the anointed will come and he'll set the captives free. He will open the eyes of the blind uh, that they may become oaks of righteousness. And Jesus uses that same passage when the scroll of Isaiah is given to him in his hometown. And he says, today in your sight, this is fulfilled. And the people all stand up and go, yes. Now, they're about ready. To, they want to throw him off a cliff. Why? Because he's taking a messianic passage and applying it to himself. Aren't you, aren't you Joseph's boy? Didn't we see you working in the carpenter shop? Didn't you fix my table for me? Didn't you fix my cart for me? And you're saying that you're the Messiah? Well, they hadn't been sprinkled with clean water and the heart hadn't been changed. But, you know, these are the themes that are within the prophets that come out in the New Testament. And you don't understand Jesus unless you understand the prophets. Open it up, okay? So, I have now given you three, four charts, five charts actually, of the major prophets. Actually, y'all have any questions right now? Nope, supper or lunch has done its job. <laughs> okay. Well, let me ask, let me, this is a homework question. What are the two words that our author talked about with the prophets. Oh, this is always dangerous because maybe nobody remembers. Two words he used in that chapter describe the message of the prophets. This is a closed book test. You're not allowed to <laughs> put the book away. Uh, okay, it's springtime. People want to be outside. I know. Come on. Hangman. Starts with a J. <laughs> you. Judgment, yes. If, if you all don't remember this, judgment is coming. What's the other word? Hope. Thank you. We understand judgment as when God judges his people because they've been unfaithful. And we understand hope because it's a confident expectation of what God will do. For instance, I coined a word and someday it's going to make the dictionary. And I say, what I am is a hopamist. Or hopamism. Okay? And I define it this way. Long definition. I have a glass of water here. It's about one-third with water in it. Okay? The optimist says it's one-third full. Pessimist says it's two-thirds empty. The realist says fill it back up. Fill it back up. Okay. 
Or he, he looks at it, he or she looks at it and says, oh, it's water. Looks like water to me. The agnostic says, I don't know if it's water or not. I can't tell. It could be gin. It could be really bad club soda. You know, I have no idea what's in that cup. The atheist says, I don't believe in water. Therefore, there's nothing in that cup because it doesn't exist. Okay? The chemist says, well, it's H2O. Okay? The hopimist looks at this cup and says, I am confident that God is going to use this. And I live in the expectation that something, some way God is going to use this. And I fulfill the prophecy. Oh, that's good. My throat needs that. That's what I hope it means. There's a confident expectation that God will use everything for his glory and your purpose. And that's a message, one of the messages that the uh, prophets were trying to get across. Jeremiah to the exiles. Jeremiah 29. We all know 29.11, right? For I have the plans for you, plans for your welfare and hope, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Everybody but me knows that verse. But you put it in the context. He's writing to those who have been told by the false prophets, don't worry, you're coming home soon. I mean, God wouldn't leave you there very long. You're coming home soon. And Jeremiah has to write a letter and says, okay, plant the strawberries, build your houses. You plant strawberries because it takes at least three years before you get any, anything from them. Build your houses, marry your children, have, have work for the good of the city because you're going to be there for 70 years. 70 years. If you're 70 and you're there, you're looking going, 70 and 70 is 100. I'm going to be dead by then. If you're seven, seven and 70 is obviously 77. They're going to have to wheel me back home. That's about it. And they say, what kind of hope is that? Well, he says, because when I fulfill my plans, you will seek me, you will call on me, you will pray. And I'm doing it because those are the number of years that you forgot to honor me with the Sabbaths, the seventh year of not planting. Um, that verse, although we like to use it to help us think about good things, really was a verse that was saying not so good things to those who are in exile. But there's a confident expectation that one day God will bring them back. And under Cyrus, he does for some of them. And others wouldn't believe it. What do you mean we can go home? No, we can't go home. So Isaiah is one of the first ones. Isaiah is beautiful because it really is the Romans of the uh, Old Testament. There's, it's split into two parts, 39 chapters and then 27 chapters. Just like the Bible has 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. Uh, he does a lot of work in condemnation of the nation. And that really comes out of his experience with God in the temple. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. 
and the train filling the, the temple, which meant he probably was high priest because he had to look into the Holy of Holies and only the high priest could look there. That which means he was an exemplary character, probably the, one of the best people of his day. And when he sees God, he says, woe is me, for I am disintegrating. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And out of that comes that whole uh, 39 chapters of condemnation. Don't think you're that good, people, because you aren't compared to God. And then you have the 27 chapters of comfort. Comfort, comfort my people. That is, come alongside, give them strength. Give them the certainty of their protection by God. Make a, make a way in the deserts. Uh, Isaiah, or not, excuse me, not Isaiah, Jeremiah quoting Isaiah. Or excuse me, John the baptizer quoting Isaiah when he starts his ministry. I am the one of whom Isaiah spoke about. Prepare a way for the Lord. Uh, I put down some significant chapters in each of those sections. And uh, I've already talked a little bit about Isaiah 6 and Isaiah uh, 61, the mission of the Messiah. So that's Isaiah. Then you have Jeremiah. I don't know. Do you know Jeremiah's nickname? Jeremy, yeah. <laughs> no, Mr. J. Mr. J. J. The weeping prophet. I, I, I can understand that because he had a rough life. Uh, he's given a great introduction to the call uh, that God gives to him in the first chapter. When, when he calls him, he says, you are going to be my prophet. And Jeremiah says, I'm too young. They won't listen to me. And then the Lord said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Do not say I'm only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you. Behold, I've put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and kingdoms to pluck up and break down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build, and to plant. And he, based, and he also calls them, you have a hard head that's going to break the nations. That's his call. And he needed to know that very early on because he gets thrown in wells. He writes out the words the Lord has given him. They send it to the king. And there is, uh, it's winter time, so there's a fire nearby. And when they finish one part of the scroll, the king cuts it, throws it into the fire, cuts the next one, cuts it until he destroys the word of the Lord. Um, it's not easy to stand before your, your ruler and pronounce some of the things that he had to pronounce. And he wept. Probably the most, uh, the deepest weeping time is in Lamentations, the next book, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, he, his book is set into sections of his preaching, 
when he dealt with the royal court and then his predictions about Jerusalem, about judgment on the nations, and finally the fall of Jerusalem. Um, that's in that section of uh, the uh, restoration for Judah and Israel that he writes at the Lord's behest what is we know is the better covenant. It's the way Hebrews. And actually, that's probably a better word than the new covenant. Because the new doesn't mean it's brand new, sparkling clean. It simply means it's better than the old one. Where the old one had the sacrifice of animals, the better has the sacrifice of the son. Where the old one had the spirit coming on people periodically, the new one has the spirit coming upon all who are in that covenant. And so we ought to call it the former covenant and the better covenant. But we can't change Bible publishing. I'm sorry. You can, that's just the way it is. So he writes the, the, the better covenant that the writer of Hebrews picks up and uses in the 8th chapter. That the Lord has given us something far, far better than what our predecessors had. And we should listen to it. Okay. How can you neglect so great a salvation? And yet, we do. They did. Like, like that. Then you have Lamentations. Lamentations is a tiny book. Uh, the Babylonians come and they siege and then destroy Jerusalem. And uh, Jeremiah is probably up like on the Mount of Olives. And he's watching the smoke come, uh, rise from the city. He's seen the walls torn down. He's seen the temple torn apart. Basically because the Babylonians were told that there's gold in that temple and it burns so it's all over the stone and you have to take away all the stones to get to the gold. And that's what they were concerned about, getting gold. And he's sitting there and he's watching it and he's bawling. It's almost like Jesus when he comes to the Mount of Olives and he looks at Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have taken you under my wings like a, a hen with her chicks. But you would not. You miss the day of your visitation when your God came to look at you. You missed it. And he says, and basically in that in that time on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sees with his uh, prophetic vision Jerusalem being sacked and burned. And he's just like Jeremiah. Seeing and weeping. That's horrendous. It's like when you know, for me, when I know denomination or church is dying, congregation is dying, because they will not repent and come to the Lord. And you know the outcome. You know where they're going. And there's not a thing you can do about it. Because they're hard. They don't want to hear the gospel anymore. They're very happy where they are. They're content. And you cry because of the destruction that's coming. Once was very proud and prophetic and evangelical congregations and denomination about to be laid into ruin 
or you know a friend with whom you've shared the gospel and they have no desire and they're moving toward their own death and you cry because you know what the outcome will be for them. And there's nothing you can do. God has to change their hearts and he has not up to this point seemed to do so. And you cry for that destruction of a human soul. You cry for Stephen Hawkins. Incredibly intelligent person who couldn't see God right in front of him. Knows all about the universe and couldn't see the God that created that universe. Romans 1. As I said this morning, taking his last couple breaths. And you cry wondering what in the world was going on in his mind. See? That's when you weep. And that's what Jeremiah weeped about. And that's what Lamentation is about. And at the same time, right in the middle, right smack in the middle, are those verses we love to do, we love to say in the morning. For his mercy is new every morning. And we like to say, oh, isn't that wonderful? But at the same time, we realize he's watching the smoke rise. And out of his hope of what he has, he would say to them, but his mercies are new every morning. Something good will come out of this destruction. It'd be nice to have that kind of faith, wouldn't it? But he was a hopemist. He just didn't know the word. <laughs> Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel is one who was in the exile. He's given visions of what takes place back in Jerusalem. And it's, he said the Spirit transported him back. And he is given the responsibility to look at the temple in the way it was being misused because the leaders had brought in all sorts of foreign gods. They were worshiping uh, foreign gods. They were doing some abominable deeds. And he got in, his, in this vision, spirit taking him there, he got to see it. Then he got to see the worst part of it, that in chapter 10, he sees the glory of God leave the temple. You think back 400 years when Solomon dedicated that temple and the glory came down and the people rejoiced. And now he sees the doors open, the veil unfolded, the glory of God moves out, moves across the valley and up onto the Mount of Olives where it sits. And the glory has left the temple. And again, he cries for what he sees. Come back, at uh, the end of the book, he talks about people coming back and being given land and the temple being rebuilt. And sure enough, it is. And the people who look at it, who knew the former temple, go, that's nothing. You should have seen it in the old days. And they look at it. And they think, this is a great place. But you know what? The one thing you never hear of that temple from the exile? 
that the glory of the Lord ever came back on that temple. Even you have Ezra and Nehemiah who, who uh, worked to get it done and you never hear that the glory of the Lord is in that place. So you can have a wicked man like Herod expand it into one of the most beautiful structures of the world and still the glory of the Lord is not there until one day this mother and father come walking in with this little baby and all of a sudden the glory of the Lord has re-entered the temple. Comes back when he's about 12 years old and the glory of the Lord enters the temple. Comes back several times in his ministry and then again he is kicked out of the temple and the glory leaves. And you wonder why Jerusalem was destroyed. And you wonder why the, the curses took place. Because they didn't recognize the glory of the Lord in their own temple. Yeah, he was encapsulated in a human being. But the Lord of glory was there. So Ezekiel has that, that opportunity um, you have passages like Ezekiel 36 and 37, dry bones, leg bones connected to the thigh bone, thigh bones. <laughs> and you have the idea of a resurrection as well as a restoration. And you have one of my favorite chapters, 30, 47, where it says, Isaiah, or, excuse me, Ezekiel sees the temple and out from the Holy of Holies comes this little tiny trickle of water and it flows past the the doorway and it starts flowing down and it becomes a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger it flows partly down and it becomes a stream and it flows partly down and it becomes a river and then the river becomes a lake a huge running water with no tributaries I've never seen a river grow without tributaries right and what does he say this is the spirit of God starts very small but grows and grows and grows in its influence and wherever the river goes there's life so Jesus is at one of the feasts it's a feast in which uh, they show living water they take a, pic, a big pitcher and they take it from a well up to the temple and they, part of the ceremony they tip it up and they let it flow out to signify God giving water to his people out in the wilderness and he's standing there and says I will give you living water and it's not only a reference to him being the rock who watered Israel in the wilderness but Ezekiel 47 I'll give you living water to the lady at Samaria. Um, if you'd ask of me, I would give you living water. And he was talking about the Holy Spirit. See, you see, there are, re you get to know the prophets because the images come up again and again and again. And they're beautiful. Uh, in fact, one person once told me, you know, this is exactly like the Christian life. When you first become a Christian, you have 
little tiny bit of the Spirit because you can't take the whole thing at one time. But as you grow, the Spirit begins to grow within you. And you go from walking next to a little dribble into coming into a little stream. And finally you get into the river. And finally you get into a river that is so deep you can't touch the bottom. And all of a sudden you realize the Spirit is holding me up, not me doing what I want. She says, you know, it's like going into a swimming pool. You go in the waiting area, but eventually you get into the eight-foot part, and you're paddling. But the water's holding you up. Unless you're our youngest son who just sinks right to the bottom. <laughs> oh, yeah. Couldn't, could never teach him to swim. So, but that's, that's the image. The image of the Christian life is being in the deep end of the pool, allowing the Spirit to hold you up. And finally, Daniel, which is just filled with great Sunday school lessons that are absolutely amazing because they destroy the message of the book. <laughs> you too can make it through your fiery furnace. <laughs> or you too can stand in the lion's den and not be eaten. Yeah, tell that to some of our brothers and sisters in Christ who have been in the lion's end, den and have been eaten. That's not what it's about. He has uh, personal adventures. He has visions. Uh, he, here you have a Christian who is one of the top three in a pagan nation, and he does very well as one of the rulers. He makes enemies of all the others because he stands for his faith. And then you have the prophetic visions of what's going on. Two of them, Daniel 7, 13 to 14, where he sees one like a son of man who comes up to the right hand of the Father. And there becomes the one who rules over all kingdoms. You know, you know Jesus' most favorite self-description, right? Son of man. He uses it more than any other time. And he uses it not to say simply, oh, you know, I'm human. I'm not only divine, but I'm human. No. He's picking up Daniel 7, and he's saying, I'm the one who will stand at the right hand of the Father and rule all nations. And the people pick this up, and so they picked up the stones, and they wanted to stone him, kill him. He's blaspheming. How can you say you're the son of man? I am. I am who I am. And then Daniel 9, which gives a history lesson between the return of the exile and the time of the Messiah. Um, we don't have time to go into it fully. That's worth three or four hours of Bible discussion. But that's, you know, God prepares his people for what's coming up. He prepared them in the covenant by saying, you do this. This happens. You don't do this. This happens. Recall it. Remember it. Obey it. He also prepares them when he's getting ready for the Messiah. 490 years. This is how you break it out. This is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen at the end of the 490 years when my son comes and fulfills his position as the son of man. God always prepares his people for what's coming up. 
uh, said this Wednesday night when we talked about God's being eternal, infinite, and immutable. He knows what's coming up. There's nothing strange to him. And he prepares you, prepares you for tomorrow. Today, he's getting you ready for what's going to happen tomorrow because you have no idea what's going to happen. He does. Um, and he did that with his people. He does it with his people with his Bible. You read this book because you want to know not what he's going to do tomorrow, but how to be prepared for what happens in your life for tomorrow. So you don't say, as some say, yes, it's 11.59 at night, midnight's coming, and the Lord's about ready to return. How do you know? Well, it's a good guess, isn't it? <laughs> That's basically what you have to say. He said, no, he, he, could, he could wait for another thousand years. My children's great, 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 great grandchildren before he comes back. He's still working with his church and preparing it. That's the hope. And that's the kind of message that the major prophets give to basically Israel or Judah, southern kingdom. It looks bad, but you just wait. Good things coming. You may not see them, but good things are coming. Okay, that's the major. Next week, or next week, yeah. Next uh, next time, the minor prophets. Uh, we got 12 to, color, cover, to cover, so you have to be here at one thirty on the dot. Actually, be here at one twenty-five with your coffee because you're not going to sleep next time. <laughs> we'll have a light meal. Uh, but no homework. Just reread that chapter and start reading some of the minor prophets. The beauty is they're short. So if you've got three weeks and 12 books, most of them can be read within half an hour, 45 minutes. And then while you're reading, you, med you meditate on them and you memorize them. So you can say, Andy, you didn't quote that right. And I'll say, you're right, I didn't. That's why I carry a Bible with me. I take after John Calvin who said it was more appropriate to have the message of the Bible in you than necessarily the words of the Bible. John Calvin said that. That's not to say don't memorize. Do it. But if you don't have the message, what's good the memorization? Okay, any questions? I'll give you a couple minutes and me a drink of water. You're absolutely quiet. I haven't aroused any questions. You are very you are like sheep in a pasture. You're so complacent. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> Well, and I think that's one of the reasons Calvin said, yeah, memorize it, but it would be better if you knew what it said than memorizing all these verses. If you got the message. Yeah, it is. It's, but, you know, I, I've seen it. Oh, what was his name? 
Perry Miller, Yale scholar, history professor, he knew Jonathan Edwards, a great preacher, better than anybody else, but didn't believe a word of what he said. Didn't believe the gospel. He was adamantly against the gospel, but he knew Edwards. Unless you're, you get cleansed and given a fresh heart and the spirit within you, you don't know. What else? says, no, I want to get outside where the sun's shining. <laughs> okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for an opportunity to think about your word and think about what it says, not only to prophets and to your people of old, but even to us today. Thank you for being able to see Jesus in what they wrote and to be able to be on this other side so we're not like the prophets who we're still inquiring what this said about you. But we know it and we see it and we're amazed by it. Help, O oh Lord, to take anything we have said that is fruitful, that is important, and to ground it deeply into our hearts and our minds and then to walk it out each day. For we offer ourselves to you in the name of your Son, our Savior, and all of God's people said, Amen.